I have a confession for you this morning, and it's a, uh, a difficult confession for me to make. Could be slightly controversial. Um, and for some of you in the room, will probably be um, a little unbelievable. Here's my confession. I have a deep admiration for Kentucky Wildcat basketball fans. All right. How many of you are Kentucky basketball fans? All right. How many of you really have reason to be and aren't just doing that because they're good? Yeah, that's what I thought. All right. Um, I have a deep admiration for real Kentucky basketball fans. And here's the reason, a couple of reasons. First of all is because they are eternal optimists. Their team is going to win it all every year. Amen. I got a couple on that. That's and I didn't expect that, but that's all right, right? They're going to win it all every year. In fact, this is kind of a fun thing we do here at the church. We, we uh, here at the church, we, we do this um, bracket thing online, and we do it, we've done it the last several years. Uh, and it's this, uh, there's nobody, nobody pays anything to do it. Nobody gets any money to do it. But we all pick brackets, and there's 30, 35 of us that have done it this year. And what's always interesting to me is, it doesn't matter how good they are or how good they've been. If Kentucky's in the tournament, every Kentucky fan is picking them to win it all. Every year. This year, in fact, I looked at some of the odds. I don't know whether you know this or not, but Kentucky's still in it. Anybody know that? They're still in it, all right? And they played this afternoon to go to the Final Four. But that wasn't where they were supposed to be. In fact, Kentucky, at the beginning of the tournament, had less than a 1% chance to win it all. Now, that has gone up, but it didn't matter. Every Kentucky fan in our bracket picked Kentucky. Win it all. And so, some of them have even been kind of chirping online about that. About, you know, ha-ha, Brother Lyle made fun of us. We picked Kentucky to win. Look where we are now, right? Scott Harris, for one, all right? And so people are making fun of that. But I love that it doesn't matter how bad they played, how poorly they played. You get them in the tournament, they're going to win it all. Here's the second thing I, I, I really do appreciate about them. The second thing I appreciate about them is this. They are all in with their team. It, they, they live and die. I want to turn off Twitter when Kentucky games are on. Because my, line, my timeline just fills up with people saying, you know, just stuff all about it. In fact, I, I saw this. This was from a Tennessee fan that was at the game Friday night. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the Kentucky game did not start well for Kentucky fans. Right? Some of you are like, no, we had them right where we wanted them. We were down 16 to 5 out of the gate. That's the way we like it, all right? But this guy tweeted, this Tennessee fan tweeted, sitting next to a Kentucky fan, already in tears, crying because her cats are losing. Now, that same woman, he said, at halftime, tears gone, now yelling, this is the greatest moment of my life. Like, emotions just ebb and flow with that. So I was thinking about it with this all-in kind of thing, because I was watching. And if you watch this March Madness stuff, and even if you're not a basketball fan, and you kind of get into it because of the brackets and that kind of stuff right now, when you watch it, when you see it, you just get 
overwhelmed with how into it these people are. Now, that doesn't surprise us in the South because we live through college football season. And people are just into it. And I couldn't help but think about this series and all that we're doing. It's not a new observation, but I just wish we were as eternally optimistic about the church and we're as all in with the church as we are with our sports teams. And that's not new and it's cliche almost, but it's true. We've been talking in this series over the last three weeks now about this call of the Lord on our lives to go all in, to say, I'm not holding back. I'm not doing part. I'm not doing some. I am doing everything. And we've talked about it in two ways. First of all, in the way that the Lord has called us into devotion, into a life all in with him. But secondly, that the Lord calls us into a devotion and a life together as a church body, as a group of people who are called to do what God calls us to do, and that we need to be all in together. And listen, I am as excited about what's happening at First Baptist Church here in Goodlettsville as I've been in my seven years as your pastor. I am excited about what's happening. I believe God is doing some amazing things, but here's what I know. God's not going to do all that He intends to do unless we are all together pushing forward, pulling together, doing what He's called us to do. And so over the last couple of weeks and today, we're talking about this concept of going all in. If you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 13. The last two weeks, we've looked at a couple of Old Testament stories. And today, I want to shift into the New Testament, into the story of Jesus, into the place where Jesus is going to show us a step of going all in. And, and, and Jesus can only demand complete devotion from us because he gave complete devotion in his life. And in John chapter 13, we have this interesting night beginning to unfold. In fact, John in his gospel spends almost half of his book describing the final week of Jesus. And when we get to John chapter 13, we, we see it turning to the last 24 hours of Jesus' life on earth. To his last 24 hours before his crucifixion. I just want to remind you of what um, was happening in the town. There was this Passover event, which was one of their largest holidays of the year. People estimate a couple of million people, three million people being in the city that day. And as they were all gathered around, as they were all milling around, as they were all there together, they were talking about reliving the moment when God rescued the Israelites out of the Egyptian slavery. And as Jesus is there, he decides that it's time to spend some time with his disciples. And so he sends them to the supper. And in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, I want to stop there for a minute because I think this is a fascinating phrase. It says that Jesus knew that it was time. And it says that he had loved these guys. In fact, if you look back through the gospel, he had spent three and a half years worshiping, celebrating, talking about, serving, teaching, loving them, 
Showing them what love is. Healing people that needed to be healed. Teaching them about God's love. Teaching them to have a righteousness that surpassed their religious teachers of the day. And what they wanted to see in the midst of that was that Jesus was absolutely loving them with all that he had. But it says here, he loved them to the end. Now, other translations have a different understanding of that phrase, and it's can be taken kind of either way. Another way to understand that is say he had loved him while they had been with them, but now he showed them the full extent of his love, the capacity of his love, the bigness of his love. It tells us in verse two, just to remind us of what's coming, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in a minute. It says, now, by the time of the supper, the devil had already put in the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. So we know that's coming. Jesus knew, and in case we miss verse one, John says, Jesus knew that the father had given everything into his hands. He had come from God and that he was going back to God. So we've got this scene there. It's the last supper. Jesus knows it's over. It's the end. And it tells us in verse four. So he got up from supper laid aside his robe, took a towel, tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel turned around him. Jesus got up, laid aside the garments that he was wearing, took a towel, began to wash their feet. Now, Let's remind ourselves of a few things before we get into the meat of it, all right? What kind of roads do they have back in Jesus' day? Nice paved roads, everybody hopped in their car. What do they have? Dirt, right? And we talk about this, we talk about this passage. They had dirt roads, and so if you're walking on dirt roads in sandals, what happens to your feet? They get dirty, right? There's probably a reason that that word's in there. Now, now, let's talk about it just for a moment again. How did they get around in those days? They mostly walked. But what other forms of transportation did they have? Donkeys. There you go. Animals, right? Now, and let's just talk about that for a minute. Let's be real honest with each other right here. When, when, when animals are walking on the streets, what do animals do? What animals do? In the first service, Ms. Hill Jernigan says they take a dump, which I said I didn't say that. Other... That wasn't the pastor that said that. That was one of our beloved senior adults, all right? Which is actually true, right? Anybody ever been with animals, right? When you were behind them and they're walking, they do, okay? If, then let's just, you know, everybody get the ooh factor out there, right? If you're walking on streets that are dirt, where animals have been walking, your feet aren't just going to have dirt on them. Right? Right? Okay? So we're not talking about shoes that have been in socks, that have been in shoes. That's feet that have been in socks. Been in shoes. Your brain ever do that? You get to the end before you're done with the beginning. All right. So we're not talking about feet that have been in socks, that have been in shoes. We're talking about open-toed sandals on dirt roads with animals traveling. One of my favorite understandings of this whole passage of Scripture comes from a preschool Bible. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible, and it's called Jesus and the Stinky Feet. Have you ever stepped in something that an animal leaves behind? I mean, like on your shoes? Like, 
we, we, we have a dog, right? Yesterday he um, decided that the front porch was where he wanted to leave his... It's hard to talk about this stuff without getting, you know, with his stuff, all right? His present. It was a gift. It was... And um, somebody came to our door passing out pamphlets about the candidate they wanted us to vote for. And I noticed they took a long time in their car, and then I noticed why, because they had stepped in it. And so... This all has a point. I know I see heads going down. I see, what is he talking about? I can't believe. Okay. So when they get to the room, usually what would have happened is they would have, they would have taken, they would have all gotten nice for this, this dinner. They would have taken care of, you know, getting a bath or taking, getting really nicely, um, getting, spraying some perfume on and all that and ordered some cologne in order to be in the place and not be bad. But your feet would have been bad. So what would have generally happened is you get in the room Whoever is the lowest in the room, servant, lowest man on the totem pole, gets up and washes the feet. Now, you know this story, and some of you know this story so well, it just kind of rolls off your back. You know, oh yeah, Jesus washed their feet. They're reclining at the table. And in their minds, I guess they're all thinking, well, <laughs> I am not the lowest. I mean, somebody needs to get up and do that. Well, I'm not going to do it. I didn't sign up for that. I signed up for the other stuff. I didn't sign up for that. I'm not even on that committee. I mean, I have worked through some stuff and I will do something. But that is not what I I did not. When I joined this group of disciples, my job was not going to be washed. In fact, I'm right next to him. That's what they're thinking. You know how I know that's what they're thinking? Because it's what we would be thinking. And suddenly... Jesus stands up. And it is intentional in the details it tells us. Four things I think it tells us. First of all, it reminds us of his coming. The towel, and I have a towel with me because it wouldn't have been a fancy towel. It's not a towel that had any meaning other than it was a normal towel. I want you to think about the towel and what Jesus did because it is so ordinary that we don't think about it much. In fact, this is the same kind of towel that gets left on my kids' floors. Amen? Is that where the towel goes? No. Well, why is it there? I don't know, Dad. Well, let's get it off of there, all right? Anybody have that conversation ever? Thank you. I need some support. All right. Y'all don't ever do that, do you? Okay, good. All right. And so this is just a normal town. It says, it's very intentional what it says. It says that Jesus stood up and he takes his outer garment off. Just as in scripture it reminds us that Jesus stood up from the throne of God, took off his heavenly garments and came to us. He wrapped the towel around him just as he wrapped humanity around him. He stoops down and begins to wash their feet just as he stooped to our level. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, there is this hymn that's sung about Jesus that sounds like what he did, except it's describing the eternal stuff. It says, then Jesus, who was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to hold on to, but instead became a servant and became obedient to God, obedient even unto death. And what John is portraying here is a visual image of the way God came to us. 
It's not just a symbol of its coming, though. It's a symbol of his ministry in its entirety. He turned everything upside down. I mean, think about it for a minute. In that room, we have 12 kind of normal guys, and you've got the guy that spoke and the world came into existence. There has never in one room been a greater difference in the authority and the power and the prestige and the rank of people than was in that room that night. I mean, you had a mishmash of fishermen and people that were trying to overthrow the government. Somebody that's already decided in his heart to betray him. You've got this whole group together. And in the midst of it, you have the king of kings, the son of God, and the one that gets up to do the most menial task you can imagine is Jesus. But that's what he did through his whole time. I mean, he talked about this great reversal that the rich would become poor and the poor would become rich. Blessed are the meek because they'll inherit the earth. That didn't make sense. Blessed are the poor in spirit for they will be comforted. Rich is poor. Poor is rich. Strong is weak. Weak is strong. The servant is the master. The master is the servant. And Jesus demonstrates this by stooping down to wash these guys' feet. Now, just a reminder to you, okay? Because when we think, we automatically think of ourselves in that situation. And we think of ourselves at a nice table sitting there and Jesus kind of, hey, can you pull your feet out this way? But what was happening is they would have been reclining at the table, leaning on an elbow, eating with the other hand, and their feet would have been behind him. So Jesus was just making the circle around the table. But at each place, he had to get down on a knee. And he had to get those feet that had been walking on that street with the dust and the dirt and the junk. And at each person, he served them. What I think is interesting, he didn't do one foot and go, okay, now I've done my part, somebody else. He did them all. This is pointed out oftentimes, but even Judas had his feet washed by Jesus that night. That was his ministry. That's what he did. Now, what I think is interesting as well is, not only does the symbolism show him coming, and not only does it show his ministry, but the symbolism there also represents his death. In fact, there are a couple of phrases in there. It says that he laid down his garment and he took up the towel. Earlier, Jesus had told them over in John chapter 10, listen, at some point's coming and it's coming real soon when I will lay down my life and I will lay it down in order to take it up again. It is the exact same two words in John 13 as John 10. And it's an obvious picture here of his own death. And he gets to Peter and Peter's like, no, Jesus, do not do that. You can't do this to me. And Jesus says, if I don't, Peter, you can't have any part. And Peter's like, well, then do the whole thing. Just don't stop with the feet. And Jesus says, no, I just. everything else is fine. I just got to take care of this. I mean, Peter could easily imagine washing Jesus' feet because that's what he's supposed to do. I mean, they were supposed to wash his feet. It wasn't the other way around. And so when he comes to him, Peter's like, no, no, no. It it sounds like when when Jesus and Peter are talking just a few chapters before in Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus says to Peter, hey, Peter, I'm going to go and I'm going to die. When I die, I'm going to... And Peter says, no, no, God forbid, that's not going to happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. And when Jesus kneels down to Peter, I mean, there's some of that in me. Jesus, what are you doing here? You don't need to do this. Somebody else needs to take care of that. That's not your responsibility. That's not your job. 
when it says it shows he showed the full extent of his love or he loved them to the end, it shows that Jesus, in the moments that were getting ready to lead to his own death, cared about these guys with all that he had. And then he tells us that the towel is a symbol for us. It's not just a symbol of his coming. It's not just a symbol of his ministry. It's not just a symbol of his death. It's also a symbol for us. There's this interesting part that happens right after he washes the disciples' feet. I think this will be up on the screen. It's in verse 12 if you're following along in your Bible. Verse 12 says, When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? Now, Most of us know the rest of the story, so we kind of read the rest of the story into the tone of that. But if you're the disciples at this moment, many of them are ashamed that they didn't do it and that Jesus did. And when anybody does something somebody else is supposed to do and says, do you know what I just did? It isn't always pleasant what's coming next. I was thinking about that yesterday morning. I've mentioned a couple of times we have a dog. And of course, when we got the dog, I have two older children that are boys. And both of my boys told me, oh, Dad, we'll take the dog out. When it gets up in the morning, we'll take it out. We'll, we, we want the dog. We'll take care of it. We'll do everything. We'll put the food and water out. We'll, you know, we'll clean up and all that. Okay. So at 6 a.m. in the morning, my dog, apparently, who is a Pomeranian, has a little wolf in him. Because he howls. I'm not talking about, like, barks. I'm talking about, whoo, like, howls. And it is loud. And at 6 a.m. in the morning, or the other morning at 5.45 in the morning, on spring break, okay, I hear the dog howling when Susan says, Lyle, dog. That's all she got out, all right. And so I go downstairs, and my responsible, great boys have pillows over their heads and the covers over them. And who took the dog out? I did. It happened to be, and you know, it has not been a pleasant morning at 5 o'clock in the morning, 5.45, 6 o'clock. It's been cold and rainy. So I'm out there standing in the rain, holding the leash while the dog, you know, dogs, all right? And I take him back in, and the boys get up about an hour later, and they come upstairs, and I say the exact same thing Jesus says. The tone was probably slightly different. Do you know what I have done for you? Right? And there's some of the disciples that are, uh uh-oh, he's about to give it to us. He's about to tell us. And he could have said, I have done this. Now it's your turn. You do it for me. Or don't you ever let that happen again. Or that's not what we ought to do. You ought to serve. But he doesn't. Here's what he says. He goes on to say this. You call me teacher and Lord. And this is well said, for I am. So if your Lord and teacher have washed your feet... You ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you would also do just as I have done for you. What he basically says is, I have shown you the full extent of my love. Another way to say this, I have gone all in for you. You need to go all in for each other. Take care of each other. Serve one another. Don't ever say something's above or below you. Don't ever say, hey, I can't do that or I wouldn't do that for them or I'm in a higher position than they are. Somebody put it this way. said that 
on a resume of anyone that is a believer in Jesus Christ, you can't write the words, I don't do feet. I mean, Jesus did. If the master, creator, king of kings, lord of lords can stoop to do the dirty, stinky feet of some disciples, there is no job that is below you. Let's get practical with that for a minute. So what does that mean? That means you serve the people around you. It starts at home. Over when Paul's writing, he talks about being filled with the Spirit. That means to have fully all of God in you, living in you, living through you. And immediately after that, he starts talking about the way that we do that. And he goes immediately into this discussion of husbands and wives and children and parents. The first place we serve each other is at home. And so husbands, the first person you serve is your wife. Wives, the first person you serve is your husband. No job is below you. And serving your spouse. Children, you serve your parents. Parents, you serve your children. It is a mutual submission and service. It is not your job to lord over them, to be their boss. Not that there aren't standards, not that there aren't reasons. In fact, in our society, sometimes we go way too far in the direction of being friends instead of being parents. But you serve them in love. The second area outside of your family, I believe, is your church. Your spiritual family that God has called you to be a part of. What you need to learn to do is to serve each other for us to serve. I mean, I know, you know, we're all here together and it's easy to kind of get in our rows and what we're doing and what we're about. Or it's easy to come and just kind of visit or be a part or kind of be a part or sit on the sidelines or come on Sunday mornings and that's kind of it. But that's not what God intended for us to do. God intended for us to serve one another and to serve the community at large with everything we have. So where are you serving the Lord among your church family? Where are you serving one another among us? And then we serve not only in our family, not only in our church, but we serve in our work environment. I was flipping through the channels last night. And I, I ran across, I don't know, one of those news programs. You know, Saturday night they have 2020 and 48 hours and Dateline and I don't even know which one it was on. But they were interviewing, it, must, it probably was ABC, because they were interviewing one of the guys from Shark Tank. You ever watch Shark Tank? The show where people come in and give inventions and they tell them good. But there's one guy on there that's kind of the Simon Cowell of it. And we'll tell him, that's ridiculous, get out of here, we don't want to see it. And they were talking to him about his style. His name's Kevin. And so they were talking about his style as a boss. And he said, listen, my style as a boss is you don't ever come into a meeting unprepared. You don't ever come to me and waste my time with something that doesn't mean something. And I will tell you right away that if you don't do it that way, you're gone. And I couldn't help but think, because I've been studying this this week. Of the difference between what we hold up in a workplace environment of the boss being like CEO, no nonsense, business minded, taking care of it, doing the tough stuff compared with Jesus Christ, Lord of the universe, getting down and washing some feet. Now, whether you're the boss or the employee at the place where you work, how are those relationships? How are you treating one another? Are you serving one another? Or are you, no, it's my way. It's got to be done this way. It's got to be happened this way. And the last place is the way that we serve the world. We're good at, especially lately, at speaking the truth. We're not as good about speaking it in love. 
It seems almost every week there's some sort of controversy that gets Facebook just going and Twitter going. And people are back and forth and this is the right way and this is the biblical way. And people are yelling at each other about what's right. Now, I believe there are right and there's wrong. But I also believe that God calls us to live in love and grace. And we tell it in a way that is meaningful and winsome. I was reading this week a story about Mother Teresa. You know who Mother Teresa is, right? Went to live in Calcutta, Indiana. And there was this British journalist who wrote about it because he went on a trip similar to the one that Mother Teresa went on where she decided to stay in Calcutta. And he said, I went to Calcutta and immediately upon getting there, I thought, how quickly can I get away? And Mother Teresa went and thought, how long can I stay? He did an interview with her on TV one time and he was talking through some of the issues of her going. And it came out of that. And he was a believer and he said, people are wondering, what do we look like on TV? How do we share Jesus on TV? And he said, all I could think watching her on TV was to get someone who was completely in love with Jesus, doing exactly what Jesus had called us to do. And when you put them on the screen, it will become evident that there's something different about their lives. Because they're serving the way God intends for us to serve. On the night before he was to be crucified, when there were millions of other thoughts and people on his mind, Jesus does the task that nobody wanted to do. Takes off his outer garment, picks up the towel, sits down and begins to wash their feet. A couple of questions for you. First of all, are you serving the people in your life at home, in the church? at work, and the community at large? And secondly, what is God calling you to do that maybe you thought before, that's below me, I don't need to do that, it's somebody else's responsibility, but it's your job. Let's pray together.